My name's Adele Onyango and welcome to another episode of Legally Clueless. No, seriously, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. Hey you, welcome to episode 124 of Legally Clueless. Thanks for rocking with this podcast and showing it so much love. Remember, you can find us on Instagram, we're at Legally Clueless Podcast. And if Twitter is your social media poison of choice, (laughs) just use the hashtag Legally Clueless. Another thing that you should totally check out is season one of our video series, which is on our YouTube channel. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search Legally Clueless and you'll find it there. In fact, the story that was the season finale of season one is what you're going to hear in this episode. It's such a good story. Oh my goodness. Listen to this. When my friend said they were going to Kenya, I was just like, sounds like a good holiday. Then I came here and I was like, seems like a cool place to live. My dad was like, Kenya, have you ever been? For you to open up a studio, you really need about six million shillings. The space that I found, first of all, you have to pay for a certain amount of rent upfront and it was just a shell then you have to hire people so i needed to find six million shillings i went to the bank because that really felt like the first place to go it wasn't so i went on like a two three month pitching spree of everyone that i knew had money and my psychology was if i can give out five percent five percent five percent of the business and bring in as much money as possible then that would be really positive so i went through the pitching round and what i managed to get was three million shillings. Everything was done except for flooring and mirrors. 48 hours before we're supposed to open, I get to my studio. The floor looks like someone had just thrown Ugali. What he said though, you tell me if this sounds sensible, the more you walk on it, the flatter it will be. I really loved this story by Chiki, which is why I was like, I've got to put it on an episode as well. Because she's just so honest about business. Most of the stories of business that we see amplified in Kenyan traditional media are so glamorous and sexy and which we all know is not the case. You know what I mean? So I really did appreciate her honesty. And so her story is going to be coming up a little later in this episode. All right, let's get into more on my week. It was not eventful. I think I left my house twice the entire week but there is one thing I went for that I really want to share with you because it was just hectic. So I was invited to give a talk in a local Catholic university to a group of students mainly doing communications and the theme of the talk was beyond the classroom. So basically how can they get prepared for after graduation, what comes next, blah 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 and I was going to be talking about podcasting and really new media in general. First foremost I have to say all right (laughs) just to lay the foundation so that you know how mad this situation was getting access to universities well in Nairobi or Kenya is not the easiest thing and I know this from working at KISS when we were doing a university tour going in by myself to give talks to students etc etc they do a lot of screening as they should because you just don't want any Tom, Dick and Harry coming to do strange things that could impact the students negatively right anyway so you know that now you know if you didn't know that's just the foundation So this particular university is pretty far from where I stay. In fact, I believe it's not considered Nairobi County. Yes, it's not. It actually is not. Anyway, it's pretty far from um, where I stay, but I'm like, this is going to be fun. And to be quite frank, 
I really enjoy talking to absolutely anyone about podcasting and new media. This is something I am so passionate about. So any opportunity to talk about it, I'm game. So jump in my car, go all the way to this um, university. And I get there at about 1 p.m. in the afternoon. So I knew I was a guest speaker and the keynote speaker was Ezekiel Mutua. For those of you who do not know, he is the head of the Kenya Film Classification Board, whose mandate really is to classify films, you know, which ones are suitable for which age group and stuff like that. And we all know, you know, he's come out very strongly to, in many cases, unfairly criticize creatives, be it in music, mainly in music. Anyways, so I was at first when I found out he was the other speaker because I personally do not agree with many of the things he said I find them quite harmful especially when it comes to like stifling creativity I'm like "Mm, I don't know what you're doing when it comes to blanketing your religious views and values on others I find that very dangerous as well it got to a point his stuff just used to really get my blood boiling so I blocked him on Twitter so that I would not have to interact with any of his comments so when I found out he was the other speaker I was like you know what I can still be in the same space with people I do not agree with so I was like no probs. I'll go. And I also remember putting in my speech just a section where I talk about how difficult some of the things he believes in and pushes for, how those things make it very difficult for creators and people in the creative industry. So yeah, at at first I was a bit scared, but then afterwards I was like, no, actually, this is a point to actually have this conversation and say, hey, this could be messing up a lot of people's present and future. People in creative industries. Hiya. So I go all the way to this university. Get there at 1 p.m. Take note of time, please, in this story. <laughs> and you know, obviously the students have done such a good job. The, the the group that was behind organizing it, their club, they created this club to help each other network and get themselves out there into communication jobs and spaces. Thumbs up to them. So one o'clock, we have like a cut caking ceremony, really informal wonderful cake to celebrate that this group is turning two years old. Then we go and have lunch and it's fantastic. But please note, the keynote speaker, Ezekiel, has not yet arrived. He's late. The event was meant to start at about 1.15, 1.30. We're now at 2.30. I think, I can't remember completely, but I think he arrived at maybe 3 3.30? I'm not sure. Around that time. I could be wrong, but he was really late. And then says that he would like to speak first because he doesn't have much time, blah, 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 which I'm like, no probs. But before he speaks, this is the part that was very unsettling for me. The drama club say they have two presentations. Fantastic. And the first is like, both of them are like sketches. So the first one, they're these kids listening to Gengetun and they look like disheveled, not well put together. For those of you who do not know, Gengetun is like a Kenyan urban new sound in terms of music that is really fronted by our next generation of musicians. And anyway, so these Kids are listening to Gengatoon and looking disheveled and then outbursts this guy in like a suit and he's like, stop listening to that and gives them this whole speech about how it's ungodly and stuff like that. I guess it makes sense because this is a Catholic university, but I was just like, okay, all right. <laughs> you know those moments? 
But what was so strange is that after the guy in the suit, the student in the suit busts in as part of the sketch and he does his whole monologue about how Gengaton is terrible and, and how although we chastise Ezekiel for his beliefs and we call him deputy God on social media and mock him, he is actually right. This monologue was really praising Ezekiel. Ezekiel removes a wad of a thousand bob Kenya shillings notes, like a fat stack of them, like wrapped in rubber bands. And then he starts giving this student some of this money i'm like what is going on here actually i probably said it in my mother tongue in my head (laughs) that's how you know shit is real i'm like i this is this is quite strange and he proceeded to do it two or three times during this whole thing and when he gave his speech it was more gloating you know about how he's a super CEO, how people who hate on him online will one day have to ask him for a job. (laughs) There were a few things he said that made sense, to be fair, but there was a lot that just did not. And there was a lot that was just wrong. And there was even more that was not in line with the theme. Please also note, this university is the student's really churn out a lot of films, right? So as a Kenya Film Classification Board, I expected to hear a lot more about what next after all of these films? What are what are the tips for them to actually really get into that industry? What are you doing for them? Or what wisdom can you leave with them specific to that, which really is under the theme of the event? That was not the case. And as I sat there, I was so uncomfortable. And all of this money thing, it it feels a lot like indoctrination. It feels like a raw bargain for for the students because I'm just like, okay, what are you really leaving them that tangible and that will really help them at this point we are at 5 30 p.m remember i've been there from one and i just i can't explain it to you i literally asked myself why are you letting yourself still be in this space (laughs) everything that's happening here is so far from what you believe in why are you still sitting here and i literally got up walked to my car called fal And I was just like, oh my God, I'm leaving this talk. I've not even told anybody I'm leaving. I'm getting into my car and I'm going, I'm so uncomfortable. So obviously his first thing was like, what the hell are you still doing there? You left, you told me you had arrived at one and you tell me it's 5.30, what's going on? And so I just told them, it's not only that, like poor time management, but more, I'm so uncomfortable in my spirit. (laughs) Oh, I'm comfortable. I know that sounds so dramatic, but imagine that's what it was. So uncomfortable in my spirit. Anyway, I get into the car and I drive off as I'm talking to Fal. And then at the point, I'm like, I hit the highway. I'm like, okay, maybe I should call the student and just give him a heads up. So I call the student and I tell him, hey, I've actually left. Thank you for inviting me. But unfortunately, I was very uncomfortable and also time. So I've got to go. And, and he's like, oh, no, I'm so sorry. Like we did take up so much of your day. Is there a way we could organize for you to come back? This is the point that I shocked myself. I literally said, no, no, I will never be back. (laughs) In his defense, it's not his fault. But I was just like, this money thing was happening in front of management, deans, 
HODs, are you not seeing there's something strange? I don't know. I think it's strange. And I've never witnessed it. I do know other people have told me that, oh, that's normal. Like, it looks like exactly what politicians do when they go on ground, which as much as you've normalized it, it is not cool. And doing that with young, impressionable people in university, what are you really telling them? What are you rewarding? What are you reinforcing? It was strange. So I tell him, no, I will never be back. And then I call the lecturer who had invited me, who couldn't be there for the event because he felt sick. And I tell him the same. I'm like, yeah, very displeased. I will not be back. And it's not about time management. I just think some things are fundamentally wrong. And I would appreciate not being in those spaces when things like that are happening. It's just... The one good thing is the drive to this particular campus is so scenic and beautiful. So I kept just staring into the fields of green. And when I was coming back, it was sunset and it looked so beautiful. So when I got back, I called another close friend and I was telling him, well, the only silver lining is that I got to see really nice views. <laughs> it was very strange. I just wanted to share that because I don't know if I'm overreacting, but I found it hella strange. However, let's jump into good things. <laughs> like the song of the week, which is a song that's definitely one of my top five favorite love songs ever. I've loved it for years on years. I've written so much or many love poems with this song playing in the background. Ah, it's by Jill Scott. It's He Loves Me. And the reason I'm sharing a love song this week, although I feel like I've shared very many love songs in the past as well. Anyway, the reason I'm sharing this particular one is because this week on Tuesday and Wednesday is Fals and I's anniversary, fourth year anniversary. We've been married for four years and it just keeps getting more fulfilling. I know marriage has a really bad rep. <laughs> it has terrible PR. <laughs> um, but I think that's really just because people don't take it and mold it to fit their personalities and their values and just what makes them comfortable. We think marriage is this one size fits all thing, which I'm really glad that we don't believe that. So yeah, it's been one of the most honest and fun journeys. I have learned a lot about who I am and I think we've really built something that meets us both where we are, as we are, and as we both evolve and I think therapy plays a huge role in that we've really just made a beautiful space for us and I think that's the point isn't it whatever your life partner situation looks like is for it to meet you both where you are and to be malleable as you evolve and to be honest and also of course to be fun <laughs> So yeah, check out the show notes or just go and search He Loves Me by Jill Scott. If you've never heard this love song, it'll change your life. If you have, you know why I love it, right? And um, yeah, go and listen to it. Let's jump into 100 African Stories. This is the second time we're having Cheeky on our audio podcast episodes. She was one of the first ever stories I recorded for the podcast. Cheeky has so much time for me. I really just appreciate that. And she is a Nigerian who moved to Kenya about seven years ago. And she has the best energy ever. She is into dance. And her story really is about 
how dance became her passion and the realness <laughs> of building a business around this passion of hers. A hundred African stories on Legally Clueless. Stories from Africa. So I'm a dancer by force by fire. If anyone knows Nigerians, and I happen to have two wonderful Nigerian parents, they'll know that spare time is not a thing that they believe in. So I remember when I was growing up and all my friends, their time was, um, you know, playing outside, those cool things, you know? My, my dad was like, you'll start outside, you'll end up in jail. It was like no in-between for him. So both my parents felt like it was very vital for me to have hobbies. So growing up, think of any hobby under the sun, I was forced into it. Now, I mean all the way to shot put, javelin, reading club, French society, whatever. And dance was just one of the many activities that I ended up being forced into. Now, my mum had a rule. Now, my mum is half Swiss. So if you understand Swiss people, you'll also understand this. If I've removed money from my pocket, there is not a single session you are missing, was my mum's rule. So um, she paid for a year of ballet. I didn't really want to do ballet, but anyway, it was one of my many scheduled activities that my mum had decided would be good for a growing young girl. So I started doing ballet. And as it happens, I was just really good at ballet. I never thought I would be. I never had any real reason to be. I wouldn't say I was like a classical music lover or anything like that. I just ended up doing ballet. Ballet is very, very interesting, especially when you do it kind of in the professional kind of like a realm, because it's like school, you do your certificates and you can get kind of a distinction and honor or whatever. And, and every person, when you start going through, unless you're just in a very bad school, you will have some form of certification process. So I, I went through the certification process and it just so happened, I was always getting the top distinction. I don't know why actually, because it's not like, I was skipping there. There were other activities that I really enjoyed doing, but I was just good at ballet. And I think when you're young, anything that you're good at, you start to love. So I really enjoyed like all the praise and all the love and everything that I got from ballet. So I was just kind of like, I guess this is my destiny. I guess this is what I was supposed to do. So I carried on doing ballet all the way through until secondary school. In secondary school, I had private tuition. It was kind of like I was under a gifted and talented program. So I had private tuition with a very wonderful, very strict Russian. And if you know anything about Russian ballet, you'll know it's like up there and they don't play games with ballet. A teacher called Ms. Volmerans um, and she was my on point teacher. So I just remember for hours after school, just going on point and down, on point and down, on point and down and she's kind of watching you know is your calves perfect are your legs perfect or whatever and like I said because I wasn't like in love with it it was just something I was good at that was just really really frustrating and it was funny because I was in class gifted and talented is very small it's kind of like out of my school which had maybe 3,000 people just two of us and um my <laughs> my partner who was also picked took it very seriously so when she's doing up down she's like is this right miss is this right and I'm like dude Sister, sister's on in half an hour. Let's wrap this up. She's like, Miss Walmarans, have I done it right? And I'm like, listen, hey, ask her one more time. I dare you. So um, I went through that. And when I was growing up, ballet was very different from what it is now. And I'm so proud of the strides that, the, that ballet has taken. And I love how um, inclusive ballet is now. I remember growing up as a young black girl, first and foremost, you didn't really see that many black ballet dancers for a number of reasons. Our body type tends to be different. Of course, you have a wide range of black physiques, but in the main, we tend to have more curvier frames, taller frames. And uh, for a very long time, that was just not allowed in ballet. You had to be a particular height and particular build. So I remember when puberty hit, 
And my darling, Miss Volmerans, was kind of like breaking her heart because she was just like, this girl is trying so hard. Well, yeah, but hips be popping and she's like doing her thing, but she is never going to make it. So I remember that kind of like uncomfortable conversation as a woman. She, I don't think she ever really wanted to have that conversation with me, but she knew it was kinder to have it than not to have it. And I think she thought I would be heartbroken. And I was like, Whew, it's a way out. I'm free. Um, this is around the same time that Save the Last Dance was coming out. So I was like, I think I could do some hip hop. I mean, like if that white chick from Save the Last Dance can do it, then why can't I? I can't. That's it. <laughs> that was it. So I went to my first hip hop class and it's, it's really true. Ballet dancers, you're taught all kinds of stif stiffness. Like you're supposed to be straight. You're supposed to, and that's what you're taught to kind of celebrate. Hip hop is the kind of opposite. It's still pretty stiff. It's not as groovy as something like dancehall or soca or something like that. It's still pretty stiff, but it's definitely not ballet stiff. So I remember going to my first class and having some boom, boom, ka, one and two and three. And I'm kind of there like, <laughs> Plie. <laughs> it didn't work. And I just don't really like it, to be honest. So it, yeah, um, my dreams of being Save the Last Dance number two cast member didn't go down very well. And then we have in the UK, because of our diversity, Notting Hill Carnival. So my school was very, 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 very diverse. And because it was a Catholic school, had a lot of Caribbeans and a lot of Africans, because just all over the world, there's a lot of Caribbean and African Catholics. So um, I remember learning from a very kind of like familiar place, dance hall and, and, and soca music, because that's all my friends used to listen to. And I didn't know about it when I entered school. My family's Nigerian. They were like not playing dance hall. They were not playing soca. I mean, they were playing hella fella kuti and that was about it. And I remember them asking me, you know, elephant man, you know, beanie man. I was like, I know fella and I know ballet. So outside of those few things, the answer is no. Um, so we used to go to, and I was always going to carnival because my uncle has a house on top of con on top of the route, but the music never really penetrated me. But I think because I was in the popular crowd and they were always African and Caribbean, I just started listening to that kind of a music. And then what happens is the thing that I love the most about dancehall culture and the thing that I love about kind of soca culture is that the dance is attached to the music. You really can't have one without the other. So I used to go to the events and, you know, give them a run was kind of big and the willy bounce was kind of big and like flowers are bloom, flowers are bloom. So you don't want to look like the only person that doesn't know what's going on, especially if you're in the popular crowd. So I remember watching all the videos when they would come on TV and this was, there's no internet at that time. So you just watch one video and you just really have to try and remember what the move looked like. And then I'd lock myself in my room and go over it over and over and over again. And then I'd go back to school. And then over time guys were like, Guys are like, oh, Cheeky, you're kind of, you know, you're really good at this. So Carnival was really my route out of white girl stiffness, I would say, um, because Carnival is the polar opposite. It's all about complete freedom, complete liberal awareness. You wear nothing. You dance on everyone and it's absolutely fine. And with Caribbean friends, their parents got that culture. My parents did not, so they didn't get invited to those kind of events, but I would be there with their parents and it would never be like, oh, you're not allowed to do this. This is inappropriate for a young girl to do. It would always be kind of celebrated, especially uh, Trinidadians, Tobagans, Antiguans, the non-Jamaican, the other islands, Bayesians, you know, those kind of islands, it was always really celebrated. So then I just picked up soca dancing. Uh, I picked up dancehall. 
I just couldn't see my life at that point without dance because I'd just done it for so long by force. But this is the first time that I loved it. This was the first time that I felt like as a young woman, I was able to really express myself, really be free. And even in the UK, we had those annoying cultural showcases. And I remember I was the biggest Jafakan. We called them Jafakan. I'd come on there with my like Jamaican flag, like everybody, let's go, one, two. And people would be like, first of all, where did the accent come from? You're not from this country. The UK such an amazing experience because black people are very very together so whether you're African or whether you're Caribbean actually really doesn't matter and that's why you have this kind of like Afro bashment movement happening right now because it's the first time black people in general have really had a mic in the UK and our cultures have really really merged together so yeah I just started doing dance hall dancing and it became so much of a part of me but what I find interesting about my journey with dance is I performing is nice creating is nice but what I loved the most about it was not only how it made me feel, how it made me feel within a space of other dancers. And I think that's the bit that I always focused on, the wellness element of it. I was kind of like, look, if I can never perform again, if I can never compete again, I'll be all right with that. As long as I can keep being in spaces where we can connect with our bodies, through the music, with one another, and you can feel okay. And nothing ever felt that bad when you're in the studio. You can have the worst day, you can have an argument with your boyfriend. And my ex at the time, go back to my last story, I think I told, said something about him there. He was a thug. So we had a lot of issues at that time. So going into those spaces and just kind of forgetting about the fact that, oh, he's due in court tomorrow or whatever it was, was really amazing for me at that time. And 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 I think I just found myself in those spaces. Coming to Kenya wasn't was an accident. So I was working at that time, I was holding down free jobs, Nigerian, that's what we do. Um, so I was working for a mental health charity. Mental health has always been really close to me. Wellness has always been really, really close to me. I was also working for a record label. So there was a record label called Soko Records. So one of the heads of Sony Records and one of the heads of Universal. So one of the heads of Sony and one of the heads of Universal, I needed some support, um, came together and made Soko an independent label because at the time, there was a big uh, backlash on how labels treated artists, specifically because black artists were not being picked. Instead, what the majors really liked to do was pick white artists that could sound black and, and market them as such. And it was at that moment in time, a really big uh, controversy. This is before Afrobeats had really even started in a kind of a mainstream kind of way. So when they set up their label, they took me on. But anyone who knows anything about independent spaces, they just couldn't afford really to pay me so well. So I was like, I'll do it for free because, well, not for free, but I'll do it for next to free because I really am passionate about this. At the same time, my cousin is the photographer for Playboy <laughs> magazine, FHM, those kinds of like boy toy magazines. Um, so I did my, in the UK, we have something called work experience where for three months you have to go and work somewhere. And I worked in his company, but it just so happened that his company had a dance studio, a dance agency attached to it. So when they found out that I had a history in dance, automatically I was picked up by the agency. Um, and it was great because at the time I was doing kind of the music stuff. So they thought I was a genius finding all of these gigs for the dancers and they never knew that it was my side hustle and then vice versa, it was brilliant. I was getting kind of like thumbs up everywhere I went. So I was juggling those three things and I was actually really happy in all of the spaces. But some friends of mine who are half Kenyan, half Nigerian had decided to come back to Kenya to open up a burger place, Mama Rocks. And I was like, well, I'm gonna come because 
why not? Partly because I couldn't get much further with mental health. I was already a manager of, at that point, I think like 100 members of staff, which meant thousands of people with mental ill health. So I was already there and I was like, unless I'm gonna open up my own mental health space, where else can I go with this? When it came to the dancing, I was already managing that part of the agency where we would recruit dancers for other gigs. So until I was gonna open up an agency, which I didn't wanna do, I couldn't go further with that. The music stuff was really hard. I mean, I'm not even gonna, it was really, really hard. And I'm not a quitter. It was really, really hard. So I was at a point where I was like, okay, so in each of these things, I'm comfortable, I'm doing well, but what's next? Cause I don't feel like, my parents come from a war background. I don't feel like my parents left a war-torn country to go to another country for me to just work for someone and be okay. So when my friends said they were going to Kenya, I was just like, sounds like a good holiday. Then I came here and I was like, seems like a cool place to live. It was illogical, it made no sense. I still don't understand why I did it, how I did it, how I've been here for so long. Seven years later, here I am. My dad was like, Kenya, have you ever been? And I was like, I mean, I went on that holiday once. You know life is not a holiday. And I was like, I'm aware, but, but I think it will be all right. Um, so when I came here, I never saw myself necessarily dancing. But the thing that I've always loved about mental health, the thing that I've always loved about the spaces that I've created within the music industry and dance are always the same. I like spaces where people can express themselves. I like spaces of freedom, of unity, of inclusion, of diversity. I like spaces like that. And I don't think ever there are that many spaces. Often it is, yeah, you can come and be loud, but. Yeah, you can come and be kind of like half naked, but. Yeah, you can come and talk about female empowerment, but. And I've always felt, why do we have buts attached to even our safe spaces, you know? Really, it should be, yeah, you can come and be, full stop. So my plan was to create a space like that. I didn't know what it would be, what it would look like, what it would feel like. And trust me, since I've been here, I've been through every kind of psychology. Like, could it be a bar? But Cheeky, you don't really drink that much, but does it really matter? But you really should, because you can't really care about alcohol if you don't really drink that much alcohol, you know? So it was always kind of like this evolving process. So at the same time, I was like, well, I do also have to make money. So I kind of like put that aside and focused on, well, what can I do in the meantime to do that? At the time, the Zumba phenomena was everywhere. Like every gym had a Zumba instructor. Every mother was doing Zumba on a Sunday afternoon. And I was just kind of like really anti that culture because something that I really felt when I came to Kenya, which is drastically different from Nigeria for good and for bad, is Kenyans really absorb other cultures. And I was like, why Zumba when we are the hub of amazing African dance style? You know, why have we been so quick to pick up a Latin American influenced experience when we have some amazing dancers here? So I really tried to almost rebel against that kind of psychology and say, no, I've spent my whole life after I left ballet uh, with Caribbean and African dance. How do we celebrate our blackness in our continent, you know? So for me, that was where I started. How do I create spaces where we're doing African and Caribbean dance, normally attached to maybe nutritionists or whatever. And then from there, I was picked up by Citizen um, for Slim Possible. One of the best experiences to date I think I've ever done because if you struggle with weight, there is nothing more pressure than being weighed on national television. I can't express to you enough how brave I still find those women because I struggle to be weighed in a doctor's 
surgery and I don't really have a problem of, well, I don't have a problem of being overweight at all. So I found them so inspiring and I felt like if I can bring some light, some levity, some enjoyment to the experience, then that was just what my role was supposed to be. And if I can prove that you can feel amazing about yourself, with yourself, dancing, and get something good out of it, which is exercise, building your lung capacity, all of those kinds of things, then that's an amazing thing. And it went back to why I love dance in the first place, creating spaces where you just are, your spirit connects with music, connects with soul, and you leave feeling well. And that has always been my passion. So after that, I think there was a lot of pressure of, again, what's next? Because I've worked, I've left my country, not my country, the country that we went to as a result of war, to go to another country, again, to work for someone else. And it was kind of like, you're backstepping. That's not what you came to do. It's great that you're carving out something. And God bless Citizen, God bless Bashira. It's still one of the most amazing opportunities that I've ever had. But at the same time, I didn't see it the way everyone else saw it. Everyone else saw it like, wow, Citizen. I saw it like, man, I'm working for someone again. Like, really? What is going on here? After I started Dance With Cheeky in the morning, first and foremost, for me, it was like a pilot of, can we really do this? Can we really, really sell the idea that dance is a good quality workout dance is for everyone dance is gonna be the thing because i think in actuality only five percent six percent seven percent of people take the gym seriously but that means we have mass waves of population who are not exercising effectively and exercise is vital not because of the aesthetic that everyone sells you on but for everything else for how you feel about yourself for your energy for your heart capacity for your lung capacity this pandemic has taught us one thing that health is vital mental health is vital physical health is vital and I really wanted people to want to take their health seriously rather than a doctor telling you and yeah you need to do 100 steps more every single day I don't think that's a healthy way to treat wellness and well-being because then you're doing it because you have to rather than you want to and I've never not exercised because I love dancing you know I do it because I want to as opposed to because I have to and I want that gift for for everyone you know so Dance of Cheeky was my first kind of like maybe it could be dance Maybe this space that I've been dreaming of, of bringing people together, making people feel amazing, could be via dance. And Dance of Cheeky was incredible. The feedback was incredible. The journey was amazing. But after four years of doing it, I hadn't really still figured out what it meant. Setting up a studio is really costly. And let me tell you something to anyone who's watching. Media looks like you make more money than you actually do. Let me just tell you that for free. It's not making you set up a studio money. Facts, yeah? Normally people who do things get side funding or side investment or something like that. Let's stop pretending. You spend the money on your outfits that you're wearing on the thing the next day, do you see what I mean? So it, it just didn't make up, make sense financially for me to go through that journey and then I wasn't still not able. So I was still working for someone. So I'm still kind of like, this is good. I'm looking cute. I'm spending money on outfits. I'm spending money on hair. That's nice. But that, I didn't come here to buy outfits. I didn't come here. I came here to do something, you know? So when I started on radio, which I'll never do again, um, I used to go home every single day, like really low. I, I, I don't want to shade anyone didn't like it, wasn't my thing. So I'd go home every day like feeling really low because for someone who's very motivated by what they want to achieve, feeling as if you're in a drastically wrong direction affects your psychological well-being. And I remember going home every day to my husband and being like, picking on small things and him being like, 
But that's because you're not supposed to be there, Cheeky. By now you're supposed to open in a studio. Now, women. My reaction to that was not, oh, he understands me, it was the opposite. It was like, this dude doesn't understand me. All I want is a hug. All I want is a cup of tea. You're not getting my struggle. Like, what are you talking about? A studio? Do you know how expensive? Are you buying me a studio? That's good. Like, this is some dream world that you're, that, you know, that you're living in right now. Like, it made me feel worse. It made me feel worse. I was like, well, you know, my boss doesn't get me. My husband doesn't get me. No one gets me. I ended up leaving just because I had had enough. But shout out to difficult conversations because I feel like I never would have put two and two together and realized that the problem wasn't radio. The problem was me. The problem was the fact that I was not in the space that I was supposed to be in. And I don't think I would have come to that conclusion if my husband hadn't taken me being an absolute cow and taken it with grace and kept reminding me, yeah, but this isn't where you're meant to be. This isn't where you're meant to be. To allow me in my own time, I'm Nigerian, I'm also very stubborn. So that old time, wasn't like a short amount of time it was like a year but in my own time to start really piecing together what do I want to do what do I want to be as soon as I decided then that it was the studio it could be nothing else like as soon as I got to that conclusion it had to be that so then the not so fun stuff began because like I said media is not paying you opening a studio money so I can break it down because I feel like people are never really super transparent about how much these things cost. And I think that's dangerous. So for you to open up a studio, you really need about 6 million shillings because the space that I found, first of all, you have to pay for a certain amount of rent upfront and it was just a shell. So that meant building showers from scratch, flooring from scratch, electric from scratch, all of that stuff. I'm still not a contractor. <laughs> I know a lot more than I did before though, trust me, but not because I wanted to. But yeah, now you're building this shell from scratch, then you have to hire people. So you really need, I mean, it's gonna be difficult for you to get away with having less than three or four members of staff. One, because you need a head of operations. You need to make sure that you've got someone who's uh, going out there, who's building, who's helping you build it. And you're not gonna be able to do everything, especially for me, because I'm also an instructor. So in my day, I'm teaching for maybe three, four hours a day. So that's three, four hours a day that someone needs to be running my space on my behalf. Otherwise it just kind of like doesn't happen. A studio is not, come and see Cheeky. A studio means that I have a diversity of instructors that you can come and see. So I really wanted to do my bit to support the dance industry and hire people and pay them fairly. Otherwise I felt like I was doing the opposite, like I was taken away from the industry rather than giving to the industry. So I took on three phenomenal and the best, I really do still believe so, members of staff. We do Afro Hip Hop, Afro Vogue and Afro Beat. And I took the three best instructors. So you really need enough money to be able to pay them for three to six months because you're not gonna be making money at least for the first three to six months then you need to market yourself you need to market your space and that in and of itself is incredibly expensive and it's the bits that people don't really tell you it's constantly making flyers it's making your website look good it's photo shoots it's clothes for the photo shoots not just for you but for all the rest of your members of staff as well it's lights it's mics it's sound it's all of these things that really start to add up so i needed to find six million shillings and I was aware of that because I did my case studies and I went into it. I went to the bank because that really felt like the first place to go. It wasn't. I went for a loan. Unfortunately the, the manner in which loans work in Kenya is really uh, counterproductive often for entrepreneurs. So I think I was entitled to loan like 1.5 million if not 2 million and I would end up paying back 4 million and it would put a lot of pressure on the business because you have to pay it back within two years and what that means is any profit that you make ends up going back to pay for this loan which 
then doesn't allow you to grow maybe for four years because then the first two years you're paying back the loan and the second two years is then when you're really able to grow. So it really stunts your growth. Okay, cool. So once I found that out, that's not an option. The second thing was about getting funding. I've always struggled with funding because I feel like very often it's about giving this sad case of Africa and then showing how you've made a solution because of a fund or whatever. And I really, I, I'm against that kind of messaging. I love this continent. I don't wanna make sad cases for Africa. We're dope, but I wanna make positive cases for Africa. So that was my first problem. The second one is a lot of funds are in like, um, specific periods of time during the year. So it might be kind of like in February, then there's not another one until July, which meant that you're putting a lot of hope onto the fact that you're getting approved for this kind of July fund. And if you don't, then what happens? Okay, so that's out the window. So then you can go to angel investors. So which that was really kind of my process, which means you're pitching. So I went on like a two, three month pitching spree of everyone that I knew had money. And my psychology was, if I can give out 5%, 5%, 5% of the business um, and bring in as much money as possible, then that would be really positive. And what I decided to do from the scratch is bring my entire team to every pitch so that they weren't just employees, so that when they then wanna go and set up their own business, they know what the process is. Like I said, I don't feel like very many people are honest about what the kind of real process is when you're going through something like that. It's just kind of like, yeah, you have to get money. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. I can't. It's worthwhile, but it's hard. And I think if you're not ready for the hard bit, then don't do it because it's soul destroying. Going to a pitch and having someone tear down your concepts, your ideas, which is their job. They're giving you money at the end of the day. You really have to be ready to take that on. You can't be sensitive in any way, shape or form. So I went through the pitching round and what I managed to get was three million shillings. Like I said, I needed six million shillings. So I spoke to my team and I said, how do we do this? Do we take a leap of faith and go with the three million shillings and hope that we get enough partnerships on board so that we can build up to that six million shillings because what the initial costs were, were two million shillings. Everything else was after that. We agreed as a team, you know what, we're gonna take the risk, we're gonna put in the hours, let's do it. So I found a contractor, negotiated them down to a million shillings. My budget was 1.5, so I've already saved like half a million shillings. Spoke to the mall and arranged uh, kind of not to start paying until we open for public. So a lot of malls are pretty open to that. So three months for free, four months for free, you really start paying when you start making money. The mall was great, allowed me to do that. So the contractor started. Now our agreement was a month. When we start getting to the end of the month, it was very clear this thing is not going to be ready within a month. Now, contractors, anywhere they are in the world, are going to make you want to kill yourself. And the difference with Kenya is in the UK, we have the Trading Standards Bureau. So you can report contractors. There is no recourse in Kenya if your contractors mess you up. Good to know. Please remember that if you're ever doing something. Really, your contractors are going to be your best friends or your worst enemies. So in a studio, what's the most important things? Flooring, mirrors. Flooring for insurance purposes. When guys are jumping around, especially if you have people who are bigger, the impact on knees, calves and fires, and especially for dance, you really don't want to give people long-term enduring injuries. And mirrors so that you can look at yourself, right? Okay, so everything was done except for flooring and mirrors. It's supposed to open in 24 hours. Have you ever looked deeply in the eye of someone that is not your husband, is not your friend, and begged them, please, please don't do this to me. And you know, they don't care. That's what happened to me. So 24 hours later, we were supposed to open the studio. 
we had put the messaging out, the marketing out, the flyers out, and it was very clear that that was not going to happen because we had no floors, we had no mirrors. So what the dude said is, give us a week, one week, and we will have it done in time. But we need an extra week. Sour. You need a week? I mean, obviously I argued it. I'm saying like I said, sour. Obviously I argued it. But if he needs a week, he needs... I have no flaws. So fine. Aye. So he goes, a few days into the week, I'm like, okay, this progress is not really moving as expected. But And, and I've sent out the communication, the soft launch is in a week from now. And the thing is your soft launch is vital. That's where you invite your potential partners, potential sponsors, potential. And I've already embarrassed myself by saying, no, we're shifting it for a week. I've made up the most BS excuse under the sun as to why uh, we have to shift it a week. Anyway, we shift it a week. 48 hours before we're supposed to open, I get to my studio. Mirrors are up, perfect. The floor looks like someone had just thrown ugali on it that's the best way i can describe it you had one tile here and then another tile here not even not even flat i can laugh at it now but at the time i was like one tile is and then another one is here and then another one is here like this flat so i'm asking the guy boss first of all how let's just start with that so the man has the audacity to look at me in my face and say so you know when we bought the tiles they were cut different sizes so aki we've tried so should I try and pay you? See, you're still gonna want money at the end of the day. You've, tr you've tried. See, you've been in the trade for how long? Listen, I'm not a flora, but I would never tell someone like this is, there were gaps this big between each tile, this big. Like you could fall into the gap and crawl out onto the other tile. It was awful. So I turned up with all of my dancers. We're excited. We've got drinks in hand, literally drinks in hand to celebrate the fact that we're finally done and we're met with an Ugali floor. One of my dancers, in fact, it really almost got physical, really. Now, something that I realized in that moment was this, and I hate to bring this up, but it's just the reality. As a female entrepreneur, you will never be taken as seriously as your male counterparts. Now, the thing that was sickening to me is, I wasn't taken as seriously as my male staff. I was paying for every single human being in that space, yet, when I would say this is not acceptable, it was, ah, imagine we'll figure it out. When one of my boys would say, you know, this is not acceptable, blah, 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 it'd be like, imagine Pole, blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking like, I'm paying for everyone and God bless my boys because they were just trying to have my back. But I was like, how can we be in 2021? I am paying for all of this. I have pitched, the journey has been long. You're giving me ugali and you're also not listening to me when I'm telling you that this is unacceptable. Basically, we told him to go home because what we realized is he didn't care and it doesn't matter. Also, something I learned is know when to cut your losses. He did not care. It didn't matter how many times I was going to bring him back. He did. He had checked out for him. Me, the tiles are not the same size. I've stuck them as, as I can. It looked like Lego, a bad version, like a two-year-old, and it is what it is. Yeah. He left. What he said though, and I'm not a flora, but you tell me if this sounds sensible. The more you walk on it, the flatter it will be. The more weight you put on it, then he's pointing at this one in the corner, say this one I've been walking on. This one I haven't been walking on. So you see why this one is okay? It's because I've been walking on it. This one is not okay because I haven't been walking on it. Don't take me for an idiot. That's the thing that irritates, don't take me for an idiot. So I just told him, get, just get out, just leave, please. 
So me and the dancers, we sat and we were like, okay, now what? I can laugh about it now because honestly, I think that's what brought us together so closely because it made me realize I had the right team because they don't own that space. But because I had taken them through the entire process of pitching, they were so emotionally involved. And I really urge employers to bring your staff on board your journeys, good and bad, because you can't expect people to be emotionally involved in what you're doing unless they really understand the highs as well as the lows. They were there and they were as hurt as I was. So us being idiots, to be honest, we kind of believed the weight story to begin with. So what we did was, and, and, and it is what it is, not our finest moment. What we said was, now curfew had already happened. So we all went to our respective houses and got buckets. So we all came back with empty buckets, just as curfew was about to kind of like happen. So we locked the doors, so you have amazing sound. It's a studio, put on songs and spend the whole night filling buckets with water and putting them so that there's weight on all the tiles. It took us until about two in the morning. We were exhausted. It's also physically exhausting carrying water. And when the buckets ran out, we agreed to sleep on the bits where there was no buckets like this so that the weight could be there. It was really fun. Actually, the night was really fun. Stressful, but fun. Now, at one in the morning, I had to message my potential stakeholders again and say, this isn't gonna happen. But unfortunately, people already paid for the first class and we had no, cause we're a new studio, we have no data. You know, it's just people have seen the till number and paid and cause it's a LIPA till number, buy goods. There's no way for you even to know the number of the person. It's not like uh, you're sending it to someone's phone. So I'm asleep trying to flatten my floor, which I thought is what's gonna help. And lo and behold, in the morning, because my class started at six at the time, women are coming through the front door. Our floor is covered in buckets of water and sleeping stuff. And women are coming through the front door for their first class. So all we had to do is lie and say, this isn't the floor. Underneath is the floor. This is, because um, of COVID, a mat to keep you guys distant. So you stay on your mat. You all the way over there, stay on your mat. Stay on your mat and I taught the class. A few people tripped because like I said, like some of them were literally like this. So you're teaching a class and you're telling someone jump forward and their foot is getting stuck under the thing and the worst, I mean, it was awful. And I really pride myself on professionalism and doing things properly. And it made me feel so awful that my first day of people coming in, that was their experience. But it was too late at that time. And, and all we could do was make it the best experience possible. We offered everyone free classes after that. I've never seen those women again and I don't expect to. <laughs> and I don't blame them if you're watching this. No hard feelings, I get it. But we still had no floor. At that time, we still had no floor. Now, like I said, please just try and understand what it feels like that you've spent all of your, you spent months getting money. You haven't even got the amount that you need to get. You've gotten half of it and you're doing it because you believe that it's gonna make sense and you don't even have the basics, which is a flaw. And at that moment in time, you have no clue how you're gonna fix that, how you're gonna solve that. And you're already now, cause you're at the opening time, paying for rent. You're already now paying for staff. You're already now paying for electricity. 
you already got people coming in through the front door from all these different like government agencies. Do you have this? Do you have that? You know, they smell new business. So they smell maybe they're going to be able to get money from it. So money is just coming out left, right and center. I think I had a series of panic attacks because I'm not good at vulnerability. I'm not the type of person to just be like, you know, I'm hurting, I'm sure, you know, I don't even recognize it really. Normally my knee jerk reaction is deal with it, keep it moving, you know? And you can't show your staff you can show your staff that things are not great and things are, but you can't break down to your staff. I mean, the first question is, this chick is paying my bills and she can't hold it together, you know? So to an extent, you're alone. And that's really the role of the, the kind of the reality of many of us entrepreneurs. There's a moment that it just hits you. Oh my God, I'm alone. And not only am I alone, I'm a responsible for all these people. And that means their families, that means their kids' school fees, that means their rent, that means their food. I'm responsible for all of that and I'm alone. And I remember when that moment hit me, it was like the most difficult moment, but a wake up call like no other. So I called, there's a kid that does clothes, does our styling, so he, he gets the clothes from Gara. So I told him, do this, go to Gara and see if you can find flooring. I trust him, I mean, I've been working with him for like five years, one of the first dancers that I hired, he's now doing styling. So he went to Ngara at five in the morning. God bless him, I mean, we wouldn't have been open still to date if it wasn't for him. Found flooring, whenever you find flooring, you find flooring fundies just kind of hanging out, hoping that they'll get a gig. So we had fundies, we had amazing fundies come down. They looked at the floor and they burst out laughing. They told us that straight away he'd used wood glue to glue down the, the tile so it never would have worked anyway because from the start the glue was incorrect that was being used the tiles had all been cut to a different shape and he hadn't bought like a knife these guys had come like with tiny nails hammers knives everything and it really made me realize how unaware i was about flooring so i couldn't even challenge it even if i wanted to um and how poor the job was done before so these guys came they did my flooring for me I don't think I have ever sighed a sigh of relief, like looking at a floor and seeing the flooring finally done. But the, the difficult thing was we had already started now postponing for stakeholders, for partners, postponing for classes, mixed communication on social media. We're starting, we're not starting, we're starting, we're not starting. So you then have to deal with the aftermath. And the aftermath is just as difficult as the bit before. So I remember just feeling like, okay, let's do it all again, which means you're spending again on marketing, spending again on flyers, spending again on boosting, calling your friends again, please, you know, mention on your show, mention on your show, mention on your socials, and they've already done all of that for you. It is what it is. We did it. We had our stakeholder launch just after the government announced the second wave of COVID, which meant half our stakeholders by then were unable to make it because they were nervous about being in a space. We opened for two weeks and we had the lockdown again, which meant all sporting facilities had to shut down again. Again, the blessing of that is from the start, I invested in like a Netflix platform. So the studio was always supposed to be 40% uh, physical, 60% digital. Where, wherever you are in the world, whatever time it is, you can log on and dance from wherever you are in keeping with what our idea is. It's for everyone at any time. Any barrier is that barrier that we aim to kind of remove. And especially for women, uh, time is a huge barrier. Um, and the website idea came about when every woman was adamant that the right time, because they're a mum, 
was X. So some said six in the morning before I take my kids to school. Some said 10 after I've taken my kids to school. Some said, can we do it in the evening after everyone has gone to sleep? You know, and every mother was justified in their, their right, in their argument for why they wanted the time. And I was like, well, you know, this shouldn't be a barrier. Let's do things so that people can do them from the comfort of their own home. They can do it with their family if they want to. They can do it whilst they're traveling, whilst they're working, whilst they're going, you know, whenever they want to. Thank God I had invested in that from the outset because that lockdown really allowed us to work on that and start doing biz to biz business to business conversations with companies, using it as staff wellness and well-being. The beautiful thing was everyone was locked down. So it wasn't just us. So it was a great opportunity to start saying, well, your staff can't access the gym. Wellness is fundamental right now. We know it because of COVID. How do we provide a solution for that? And start having those kinds of conversations. When we opened, again, a blessing, our clients just came back. Um, and it also made me realize you can only stress over what you can, can you know, take care of. You can't stress over things that are completely out of your control, you know? It starts being counterproductive. My mom used to tell me when I was growing up, that stress, use that for a solution. Otherwise you're just going down a negative road and you can't really do anything about it. You'd rather take all of that energy and put it into finding some form of a solution. And if starting a business is gonna teach you anything, any one lesson, it's gonna be that because the stresses, they're still there. I mean, we're still gonna get, and, and we're probably gonna have them for eternity. The difference is me, how I receive those stresses, how I respond to those stresses. Now it's more, okay, plan A hasn't worked. We need a plan B and a plan C and probably a plan D because B and C are probably not gonna work as well. So we'll probably take the plan D at the end of it, which is phenomenal. It has been awesome. Long journey still to go. But I'm loving the feedback that we're getting. We're working with international partners. We're working with Red Bull International. We're working with Trilla TV International. Because we invested heavily in the experience, people are really starting now to understand that dance is such an effective tool for what is our biggest pandemic right now. Outside of COVID, we have a mental health crisis that we're gonna really have to support people with. And that's what dance can solve. Catch more African stories in the next episode of Legally Clueless. I love Chiki's energy. I know I keep repeating that, but it's just because it's so true. And just her honesty, even just when she's talking about trying to get funding to start her business, it's real. It's, it's not easy. And I feel like a lot of times we glamorize the entrepreneurship journey and business thing and we make it so sexy we don't talk about the hardships and the licenses and all of the shit that comes with it and I'm just so glad that she did that so what I'm going to do is put a link in the show notes to the dance shags so you can check out her dance studio check out the website see whether it works for you if you want to register for a class another thing I'm going to put a link to is the video of Chiki sharing this story because she actually shared photos of the Ugali floors and oh my goodness how she did not collapse when she first saw those floors I don't know because I think I, I would have collapsed or choked somebody <laughs> the contractor oh just go and watch it so you can see the actual photos of the Ugali floors okay as you are doing that remember if you hear something on this podcast that you connect with or just got you thinking and you want to share those thoughts you can record a whatsapp a voice note and send that to the podcast hotline number which is plus two five four seven six eight six two eight seven nine zero hi adele my name is lucinora i've been listening to your podcast for the past 
um, one and a half weeks somewhat. And oh my God, it is everything. Every time I listen to an episode and sometimes I share about how many doubts you have and I'm like, do you know how amazing you are? I listen to your podcast every morning when I'm having breakfast before I do anything else. And like yesterday, I couldn't listen because I was having a few challenges and my day was just so incomplete. I just wanted to say like your podcast has just changed my life and I really, really love what you're doing. But I just wanted to let you know that your podcast is amazing. The work you're doing is awesome. I listen to the paper stories and every time I learn something new or I relate to something. Oh my word, thank you so much Lucy. It's just it's so wild when I hear that people, because you know my relationship with words like I take words that people use so seriously as I should, right? So whenever people tell me that listening to this podcast has changed their lives, it's like mind-blowing on my end because I'm just like wow this is such fuel especially on the low days when I probably don't want to record or I'm just going through the usual shit storms in life it really is fuel for me to ensure that there's another episode just for me to keep moving with this platform that I've created so I'm very thankful that you've worked the podcast into your routine and speaking of things that we have created the tour so the Nairobi leg of the tour is actually on the 30th of July. That's this Friday. And it was so cool. Like I was calling some of the shortlisted storytellers and some of them were like screaming and they couldn't believe I was calling them. And that was just so, so they start screaming, then I start squealing. <laughs> so it was powerful, but also very loud at the same time. Um, but I think we will have such an amazing experience. I'm learning through this process that yes, plan, but don't have such a huge emotional reaction to plans having to change. This is something I'm learning. I've not mastered, but I am trying to learn because I think we had two things changing. The first one being the van or car that I thought we were going to use. When we did the viewing, it turned out it was too small. So then we had to start <sighs> like looking for other other vans and stuff to hire. And we're viewing the one that we kind of have settled on tomorrow. So I hope that works out. So again, that meant me going back to the budget and restructuring it. Let me tell you, when I'm done with this tour, I don't want to see another budget for like at least two weeks, like at, at the very least two weeks, because <laughs> I've had it with numbers. So there's that. And then plans changed way, 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 way. Our Nairobi location double booked us <gasps> friends i almost collapsed <laughs> but you see that's what i i kind of have to work on this heavy emotional response to plans changing oh it's so hard not to want to collapse and to instead be like okay what is how do i solve this problem okay we're going to do abcd so and these are just two i'm pretty sure once we leave nairobi it's going to be very hectic <laughs> yeah so the nairobi leg is 30th which is this friday and then on the 8th we leave nairobi for kisumu so i'm just waiting to see <laughs> 
what else is going to happen? But what's also dope is I'm going to be recording most of the audio episodes on the road. So you'll get to feel like you are on the road with me when I'm in Kisumu and wherever, which will be really cool. And then obviously we're doing part of the Legally Clueless video series. There are going to be video episodes from the tour so you can visualize how things were for us in the various counties that we're going to be in. So that's going to be super dope. So I urge you to subscribe to our Legally Clueless YouTube channel. There's a link to it on the show notes, or you can just search Legally Clueless on YouTube. Catch up on season one as you await the episodes from the tour and season two, of course. I'm very excited about this tour, and I think it's just going to be... (laughs) so much fun (laughs) at the very least you know so much fun anyway i have to end this episode here but do remember new episodes go out every monday and this podcast also plays on trace radio in kenya so just go to traceradio.co.ke for a list of all the frequencies that you can stream trace on in the various counties in kenya and of course catch this podcast there as well that's it for this episode of legally clueless you can share this podcast with your friends you can keep it for yourself i'm not judging just make sure you're here next week for the next episode